on this episode of Comedy Rewind. Was the Royal Tenenbaums the beginning of Wes Anderson's signature visual style? Is this movie actually funny? Seriously, is it a hot take to say this movie is good, but not at all funny? All of this and more on Comedy Rewind. 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 Push Rewind. I thought this was a comedy show. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to 8-Bits Comedy Rewind. We're powered by Audio-Technica as we re-watch the great comedies of the 1990s and 2000s. I'm your host, John O'Peck, and joining me, taking a break from breeding Dalmatian mice, he's the deputy editor at Player 2, Stephen Del Prado. Welcome to the show. Great to be back. Yep, we've um, pulled you, I've, I've been able to pull you in for some, some good ones uh, in the 2000s. The last one, I think, was Little Miss Sunshine, wasn't it? Oh, yes. Wonderful film. Or that or that or Napoleon Dynamite. It was one of the two. I, I think Napoleon might have been prior to that. But um, both of those movies that you've just mentioned, I think, are relevant to this one. The Royal Tenenbaums, uh, which is a Wes Anderson film from 2001. And I guess I, the reason I tapped you on the shoulder is because it's definitely more of that... Um, I mean, you're a film teacher. It seems like a film teacher kind of movie <laughs> it's as a- far as like... You know, the way that Wes Anderson makes these things, the the, the themes, the sets, the design. What, what are your immediate thoughts about that? Um, Wes Anderson is a go-to for me uh, in teaching certain units. So if we're looking at modern auteur filmmakers, even though most people in the industry will tell you that the term itself is totally bollocks and doesn't actually work at all in the real world um anderson definitely has a very sort of singular vision and his execution uh is eerily similar across his entire oeuvre so his whole body of work is and it's you look at royal tenenbaums and so much of the stuff is there and it's interesting considering this is what was his third film and mm. probably his first like really big budget picture going from bottle rocket then to rushmore then to this where there's a big jump in, I think, the budget, and that shows. But it's also, like, interesting to go back and look at, like, how much of his stuff was kind of fully formed at that point and weirdly Mm. almost comes off, like, self-parody. Like, I hadn't seen this film in a very long time, and watching it was like, oh, my God, it's a Wes Anderson film. Yeah. (laughs) I I don't know if Rushmore had the same symmetry and the, the same style. It wasn't quiet there, and I I Mm. wonder how much of that was maybe hampered by time constraints and budget. Like, this was, I think, his, you know, first film where he had 20-plus million dollars, and Mm. I think you can always see that in a lot of directors when they go from their early work where the budgets were very tight to the first film where they have, you know, like, a lot of money to spend. And for some directors, uh, it makes a huge difference, and for others... You sort of wonder where the hell all that money went. Um, but I think it it's very clearly on the screen in this film. Yeah, it does seem like it. maybe it's the beginning of Wes Anderson doing Wes Anderson. what he's known for. <laughs> well, what he's known for with the camera. Like, I guess um, Rushmore certainly has the same kind of dryness to it. And the, the dialogue is, is clearly something that's very Wes Anderson. But um, yeah, they, they really go for that, you know, symmetry, the the colourful, uh, or I guess like the a particular like cartoon character, like... Yeah, particular colour palettes. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, the wardrobe and just, yeah, sort of meticulous attention to the style of the film in terms of mise-en-scene, like the set design, all of those elements are very much like, 
you get the sense he has a very clear idea of what he wants and is mm-hmm. able to express that um, very meticulously. And as you said, yes. with the the particular camera movements, I don't think this is as whip pan heavy as some of his other films are, but definitely, you know, a lot of dolly shots and that symmetry of um, the frame. Yeah. So it's, it's probably also his first... Uh, I mean, Rushmore had... Uh, Bill Murray and Bottle Rocket had Luke Wilson but I know the Wilsons weren't really a big deal when that movie was made and then Bill Murray was probably the only like I'm I'm thinking in my head I know Jason Schwartzman was in Rushmore but he wasn't a big star so like this is loaded with stars especially for the time it was made Um, so to get made for for like around 20 million dollars is actually pretty impressive when you've got Ben Stiller, Gwyneth Paltrow Bill Murray, Owen Wilson, Gene Hackman, you know? I have to imagine they weren't making, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow, Ben Stiller, or Gene Hackman money on this film. I I, no. I get the sense <laughs> that maybe a few of them were taking a bit of a pay cut. Um, I did read that apparently a lot of the production had to be shaped around Paltrow and Stiller because of their hectic schedules at that point. So that sort of makes sense that mm. they were fitting Wes Anderson in, so to speak. Yeah, for sure. I mean... They would have been working on all kinds of... The early like 2000s. 2000s. <laughs> yeah, like working on Zoolander, working on Meet the Parents and mm. working on whatever Gwyneth Paltrow was doing. Shallow How, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, not, not um, Goop yet, I don't think. <laughs> no. So, so what are your uh, personal memories and experiences with this movie? Because me, I remember probably... what did, I think I heard the buzz about it and like read about like you know, how much critics loved it. And that was probably what inspired me to check it out on DVD. And I remember that I liked it. And that's probably what spurred me on to go and watch Rushmore and Life Aquatic. Um, I think I enjoyed both of those films more than this. And I think, and I think I remember the novelty of seeing Ben Stiller and Owen Wilson in more straight laced roles was appealing to me at that particular time. Cause they were so big in the, more screwball kind of comedy um, world at that point. Yeah, like, the you know, the sort of people you'd expect to see in, like, a Ferrelli Brothers movie or something like that. And Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wes Anderson's a weird one for me because I kind of, in the early 2000s, I was still in high school. I had not done a skerrick of film study yet. I'd made films with friends, but we had no idea what we were doing. We certainly weren't mm-hmm. students of the form or anything like that. Uh, so it was a couple of years later, I was living in Sydney and, um, my friend, uh, Mitchell actually introduced me to Rushmore. Um, and I watched Rushmore and then I think it probably wasn't until much later that I got around to seeing the Royal Tenenbaum. So, uh, it was probably a good, the film was probably a good four or more years old by the time I actually got around to seeing it. Mm, And, um, so it was interesting to sort of have seen, you know, some bits and pieces of other Wes Anderson films before this one. And it sort of, I guess, feeling like it fit, but also was a bit maybe prototypical of where he'd end up with on like the Life Aquatic and, you know, leading up to obviously um, Grand Budapest Hotel, which I think still stands as probably my favorite film of his. Yeah, I haven't been keeping up with his movies, so I know that I've got quite a few to check out. And they're, they seem to all be on Disney+, Plus, um, at least the last few leading up to uh, the, the last one that was the French Dispatch. Yes. Um, 
which we'll talk about in a little bit. But you know what? My my you know spoilers for some of the stuff that we're going to talk about a bit later. I didn't find this movie very funny. It's not. I, I when I, you I went <laughs> wait rewatching it. Um, I I was like, wait a minute. I'm pretty sure Jono is doing a comedy podcast. This is like, it's very dry, and it yeah. <laughs> you can see why it, it leaves itself so open to parody in so many things and sort of. You know, you look at a lot of the parodies of Anderson's work that have been done by places like Saturday Night Live, and so much of it is lifted mm-hmm. from the Royal Tenenbaums with things like the characters costuming and the Gwyneth Paltrow character and all of these other things just seem to have become sort of emblematic of his work, even though this is a film that's over 20 years old now. Mm. Yeah, I don't know if it was just like in my memory thinking like, okay... You know, I've got Bill Murray, got the Wilsons, got Ben Stiller. Like, it's going to be a good time. Laugh a minute. (laughs) Like, even if it was that kind of more like mumblecore kind of um, thing that uh, became probably more popular in comedies later on, probably like mid to later 2000s. That was probably how I remembered it being. But watching it, I was like, it's... I don't really even know if it's fair to call it a comedy, which it, it is... That's what they call it. They call it a, a like a comedy drama or a dark comedy. Yeah, and... black comedy, dramedy, all of those terms. Yeah, I don't know. Like, yeah. I guess, I guess maybe when I was younger, I probably thought it was funnier than I do now, and now I just think it's kind of sad and depressing in a lot of ways. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true to my experience as well. Um, it, like, it was. It's. Yeah. It's, yeah. You, you kind of like definitely humor was not what i was getting out of it it was more like yeah just especially with the character of royal himself um which obviously uh, i think i found a lot more humorous in the mid 2000s than i do now yeah and that's something we'll get to with the categories i guess but um yeah for me it was more like it was just a quirky drama like quirky was the word that i kept coming back to where you know all these characters are all have their unique quirks and you know ben stiller's um Chaz is running around in a tracksuit and luke wilson's dressed like he's playing in tennis even though he's retired from tennis like there's all these little quirks and stuff that um are kind of funny but they're not like jokes if, if that makes sense they're no. not um it's it's sad like when you when yeah. you when you start to pull apart the like the and look beneath why they are doing those things it yeah. like it is it's really sad to see these characters as sort of these burnt out husks clinging on to faded glories of the past yeah indeed so you mentioned the budget before. It was $21 million and it made $71 million. That's Think um, about that in terms of 2020 right now. I cannot imagine a $20 million <laughs> film like this making that much at the box office. I, It's such a shame that those days are done. And mm. it, it, it would just... It's so interesting to think that, that like, you know, something like this, you look at it and be like, this is going to make close to 100 mil at the box office. Yeah, I mean, I don't really know how his movies do now. Um, I guess he has built a following over the years. But watching this, it's hard not to see this being like a direct to Amazon or a direct to Netflix kind of film these days. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I I think 
he would get a cinema release only by virtue of the fact that he is Wes Anderson now. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but that's, outside that's of that... exactly right. <laughs> yeah, it's like, well, uh, you know, it's Wes Anderson. But again, I think that maybe his audience doesn't exist at the cinema as much as it did at that point in time. I think the landscape of cinema has changed so much that I don't really know that something like the Royal Tenenbaums now would pull that cinema audience. It would be the kind of thing that people would look at and be like, I'll just wait for it to come to Disney+. Plus." Mm, yep. For sure. Uh, so, the critics, the critics, where do you think this one sits on Rotten Tomatoes? I reckon it would have been slightly divisive. I'm going to go 82%. 81%. Oh, so close. 81%. That's very close. Doesn't get any closer. Yeah, so they did... I mean, you say divisive. That's a pretty high score, especially for this podcast. Like, it's it's probably in the top, you know, I don't know, top 10% of uh, the films that we talk about easily if not higher. Um, oh, no, absolutely. It, comedy yeah. is always... Comedy is so subjective. Um, and yes. I think that with Wes Anderson, there would have been a proportion of critics who would have been afraid to critique the film <laughs> for fear of others blasting them for their supposed ignorance. Oh, you yeah. just don't get it. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. I got a couple of these remarks. They're mostly positive, And I really had to go fishing to find a negative one that summed up part of how I felt about it. But um, this one comes from In These Times. If it sounds bittersweet, it is. But like the best family albums, Tenenbaums is split wide with open-heartedness and equally generous with its triumphs and failures. And then one from the Minneapolis Star Tribune. The film manages to be both sarcastic and sentimental. As odd as the Tenenbaums are, the family remains bound by love. And I liked that one because it, it does encapsulate, I guess, what the message of the film is, which is you, you can have these broken families and um, fractured relationships, but it just takes someone making an effort sometimes to repair that kind of um, division and I'm, and get everyone back together. And a willingness to forgive on the part of the others as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, um, you know, they kind of... It's, it's, it's funny because they kind of skip over a huge part of these people's lives from childhood to, you know... I guess mid thirties or whatever it is. And, um, I think that's, I think that's interesting though, because I think like there's a reason they do that. And I think the suggestion is that those people got to a certain point in their lives and just sort of stopped. Arrested development, like in multiple senses. (laughs) Yeah. Because this is like, you know, these kids who excelled as, as prodigies were arrested in their development. But I've also heard people say that this is like a not an unfunny version of the TV series Arrested Development, which <laughs> is, um, you know, I can see some comparisons there to be made for sure. Yeah, I'd, I'd have to double check when Arrested Development premiered, but I don't think it'd be too far after this was released. Well, yeah, apparently, um, was it Mitch Hedberg? I can't remember exactly the name of the Hurwitz? guy. Hurwitz. Hurwitz, yeah. I knew it was something Jewish sounding, but Hurwitz. Um, he saw this movie and the thought popped into his head that now I can't make 
Arrested Development because people will just think that I've stolen. <laughs> oh, you're the just idea. ripping off the Royal Tenenbaums, <laughs> you scumbag! Yeah, but thankfully for us, he went ahead with it. Um, here's the the negative review that I wanted to read from the Daily Mail in the UK. These characters are written with the broad strokes of caricature, yet they are neither funny nor, in the end, sympathetic. And I do connect with that in a way like I I didn't find them as funny as I wanted to um and it's also hard to kind of relate to their their issues and just their life in general because it is they are so quirky and from another world I guess yeah I, I felt like upon reviewing some of the performances seem a little bit hammy um Mostly not from, I would say, obviously Gene Hackman stands out as giving a very interesting performance um, along with Angelica Houston, but Ben Stiller, especially some of his scenes seem very sort of not quite as dramatic as you would hope. Like maybe he wasn't necessarily sure of the tone he should be striking or maybe Anderson wasn't being specific enough in what he wanted or Mm. I'm not quite sure. But yeah, there are a few moments where I'm just sort of like this doesn't feel quite there for me yeah um gene hackman did win a golden globe for best actor in a musical or comedy um could have just as easily been nominated for like best supporting actor in a drama i think for his performance but that's getting back to how funny you think this movie is <laughs> how many genres you think it straddles and where it falls more clearly yeah yeah do you want to have a guess for the number one song when this released in australia which oh, was okay. march okay so it was march 14 2001 2001 oh i want to say my gut is telling me it was maybe hey ya by outcast but i think that might have been later in the year was it even 2001? I, I thought it was a little bit late. I thought that oh, was maybe that's 2003. So 2001. Yeah. Ooh, okay. What was 2001? Ah, no, that would have... I'm getting my Outcast albums confused. That was Stankonia. <laughs> so potentially Miss Jackson. Um, or oh, So Fresh, So Clean. But also around the same time was, I think, Blink-182's Take Off Your Pants and Jacket. But I do not know mm. if that would have charted as high as I would have liked. So <laughs> I have no idea. Is it Pink? Is it something by Pink? <laughs> It's something like that. It's um, whenever, wherever by Shakira. Oh my lord! So, Classic. So more in that, uh, more in that pop realm, mm. but uh, a good four or five weeks on at number one, and followed. She was knocked off by Casey Chambers. Not pretty enough. So, oh well, that's a shame, go. Shakira. <laughs> She's done all right for herself. She has. For sure. Uh, Okay, what have you done for me lately? There's a lot of people to get through, so we'll just rattle them off. Uh, Wes Anderson just had The French Dispatch, which also starred a couple of people from this film, including... um, I did not write down their names. Uh, Let me quickly look it up. Uh, Let me... Is it uh, Bill Murray? Jason Schwartzman? um, (laughs) Trying to think... Owen Wilson was in it. Oh, yeah, there we go. Um, yeah, so, you know, I guess Wes Anderson's known for reusing the same people, um, and he's still doing that. To a degree, and I always thought it was interesting that some of the actors from this film, especially, he kind of never worked with again, and Mm. I wonder if there wasn't, you know, things on the set that meant that he wasn't as keen to bring them back. 
later. Well, Gene Hackman is famously difficult on this movie. I don't know if you've heard about that, but um, he signed up hoping for kind of an easy, fun time, and apparently it wasn't easy or fun, so he became quite difficult to the point that uh, Bill Murray felt like he had to kind of relieve the tension and um, do nice and fun things for people to to lighten it up again. Which is interesting considering some of the stories you hear about Bill Murray (laughs) on sets, so that's... Yeah, yeah, that's certainly. I, I, I guess Bill Murray has that relationship with Wes, where he doesn't want Wes to get let down because they've they've had you know a bit of a history together, mm. um, which I understand. You know, if you go to a friend's party and things are getting a bit out of hand, you might try and help the friend. Yeah. Hey know, guys, what's going on? How can I help down? sort this out? Oh, yeah. it's me, Bill Murray, the mediator. <laughs> And I mean, I guess there's all sorts of little connections there as well, because, you know, Sofia Coppola directing Lost in Translation is, you know, loosely related to Jason Schwartzman and Nick Cage, Mm -hmm. obviously. So I wonder if there's not something else, you know, there like, hey, we're all kind of we have all these connections. Let's uh, let's try to see how we can sort this out. Yeah, I mean, the Stillers and Wilson obviously have a lot of experience working together and uh don't know that Gwyneth Paltrow had crossed paths with with anyone before, but yeah. No, and I, I wonder if that wasn't her trying to sort of stretch a little bit after getting put into a lot of these, you know, like you said, Shallow Hal and rom-coms and other sorts of things. And mm-hmm. what did she have? Sliding doors and things like that. And maybe this was her trying to get some more indie cred. Yeah, it's it's possible. Um I give I give her kudos for mixing it up though because she went into those films you mentioned after Shakespeare in Love and Oscar success and all that kind of thing. So yeah, she's not afraid to to do whatever. I guess maybe that was where the paychecks were. Maybe, yeah. but oh, or just know. trying to dodge Harvey Weinstein. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Um, so yeah, Gene Hackman retired from acting in 2017, so we haven't seen him since. Gwyneth Paltrow. Fair enough. TV series. Yeah. The <laughs> dude looked old in the 70s. Called uh, the, the Politician. I haven't seen that. No. But um, as we mentioned on the Shallow Hell episode a few weeks back, she also played Pepper Potts up until 2019. Um, ben Stiller's been producing stuff. That's pretty much all he's been doing. He's not really acting a lot these days, but he is working on pre-production for Dodgeball 2, apparently is he, still. Is he so. starring in that? It'd be hard to see him not at least appearing in it, I wouldn't think it? Like seeing photos of Ben Stiller recently, it's become very apparent that that dude has aged like twenty odd years since some of these films came out, and um, yeah. it's it's going to be really interesting to see where he goes from here. Obviously, his dad Jerry Stiller, amazing actor and comedian all throughout his lifetime, and I'm hoping that mm. Ben Stiller can keep that up. But I wonder if Dodgeball Two might be like a passing the torch on kind of yeah. thing. I don't know. I think he just enjoys the other side of the camera too much. I think that's what it is. And it, it doesn't help that Zoolander 2, oh, which that is probably f- like it was probably five so years badly. ago. Um, and he clearly like completely dyed his hair black to play that role yeah. again. So he looked the same age. So when that's like the last time we saw him in a big movie and that's how you remember him and then you see him with white hair like Ted Danson and you go oh like <laughs> he yeah. aged really quick didn't he <laughs> yeah um Owen Wilson he looks exactly the same as he did 20 years ago I I really feel for Owen Wilson he had that very rough patch in his career 
you know, around the time Tropic Thunder came out. And it's, you know, I have been very happy to see him more recently in films again. And then he's sort of come out yeah. of the other side of all of those struggles. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Loki would be the um, biggest thing he's done lately, but he's also, yeah, appearing in films like French Dispatch and some other stuff. Oh, is he doing Lightning McQueen in that new Cars Limited series? Uh, good question. Cars, what's it called? Cars Limited? Oh, I can't remember what it's called, but I know there's a new series coming out and I really hope it's him and not just a sound alike. Let's have a look. Yes. Cars on the Road. It is indeed. Oh, very good. Owen Wilson and uh, Larry the Cable Guy. Very nice. Okay. Uh, next, uh, Luke Wilson, the brother of Owen, who was in this series called Stargirl. I never heard of it. Uh, and an action movie called Gasoline Alley with Bruce Willis, which I can only assume is one of those like dozens of films that he's been trying to squeak out before his health completely gets away from him, sadly. Yeah. Um, not some of his finest work, but obviously, you know, the man has bills to pay. So in... In one sense, I can understand that. Um, Luke Wilson's yep. an interesting um, one. Like, I, I always find him probably sorry. underused. Like, it feels like feels like Luke Wilson should be in more things. Yeah, it's it's funny because there was a, sh- a short um, stint where he was like a leading man, idiocracy, and like old school. Dr- was he Drillbit Taylor? Was he in that? No, one? that was Owen Wilson. There's a there's a movie like Drillbit Taylor where he's the com- comedic lead. I think, but um, yeah, it is funny that I guess he just went in a different direction or maybe people got sick of him. I don't even, I don't really know. It's hard to, it's always hard to know with people like that. Um, Bill Murray. So Ghosts, Busters, Afterlife. He had an appearance in Spoilers, I guess, if you haven't seen it yet. Um, and then there's an Ant-Man sequel that's coming out soon that he's apparently in. I don't know who he plays in the MCU, but that'll be interesting. And then uh, Danny Glover is the only other guy that I wanted to mention from the list. He was, I don't remember this, but he was in Jumanji, The Next Level. He's working on Lethal Weapon 5, um, apparently. So just a, a, a cool like oh, 20 Lord. plus years in between <laughs> for, the, for that sequel. Now he's really too old for this shit. <laughs> Absolutely. Too, too old for Mel Gibson. Too old to put up with him. What's the most 2000s <laughs> moment of the Royal Tenenbaums, Stephen? Oh, that's, that's such a hard thing because it's not a movie of its time. It's so weirdly like anachronistic and is using all of these like kitsch and nostalgic elements. I think the cast, I think it's probably just the cast is the most early 2000s bit of the film. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's true. Um, this is one of those weird ones like Napoleon Dynamite, which we did previously, where it's not clear when it's meant to be set. Like, they've deliberately filmed it in a way with sets and costumes that, like, I, I, I was trying to find out on the internet when it, what year it takes place, and a lot of people are saying, oh, it's clearly set in the 70s. Or you, you can tell from the soundtrack, there's a lot of... Simon and Garfunkel and stuff like that, and it's clearly set in the 70s. But then you've got, like, these tombstones when characters die that say 2001 or 2000, which clearly conflicts with the theories that people have about it. So um, it's kind of a timeless thing in that sense. They're not throwing out pop culture references and they're not um, 
showing off technologies that pinpoint it to a particular time. No, Wes Anderson, I think it's a, a trick he uses in a lot of his films, um, is that even though it's potentially supposed to be of a time, even in Grand Budapest Hotel, you can see this, it's still like people talk in ways that they would not have talked in that particular time period or, you know, other elements in there just are a little bit incongruous with it. Um, and like I said, I think it does lend it a sort of a timeless appeal in that it has a feel, but it doesn't necessarily specifically bring to mind that particular time. So the thing that I had that was the most 2000s thing was just like <laughs> those red tracksuits that the uh, that Chaz and his two kids are wearing. I know those tracksuits existed previously because all the fashions apparently 70s inspired, but um, I feel like that that look had a comeback. And yeah, new metal brought it back. Even like we uh, only about a month or so ago, we did "Dude, Where's My Car" on this podcast, and the same thing. Like they're wearing stupid tracksuits. There's like a um, Buster Move video montage where they're wearing stupid matching tracksuits. So. I think it was just an early 2000s thing. Like it came back in fashion for a short period of time. Yeah. Hip hop and yeah. Corn bringing it back. I imagine. <laughs> so what, what do you have for the most iconic scene? I don't know if it's iconic to everybody, but uh, Luke Wilson shaving <laughs> himself is probably up there for me. Um, along with some of the other harrowing elements around that scene. Yeah. Funnily enough, like, one of the only things I remembered specifically about the movie in between um, my viewing sessions of almost 20 years apart was that they show a, a man committing like trying to commit suicide, which, again, for a comedy, not the lightest material. Um, and no, very, very dark. But, but still, for some re- yeah, for, for some reason, that's the image, like the image of this guy in, in these sweatbands, um, razor blading himself, is for some reason darkly in my mind one of the more iconic things because it's just so unexpected in in what's meant to be a comedy. It's um, and it's I think one of the yeah, ostensibly a comedy and yeah. It's a bit jarring. Yeah, it's yeah, it's it's a bit full on. <laughs> what about you? Yeah, so so that was that was one thing, but then after watching it, I think the car crash is probably the next one because that's the closest that it comes to kind of um I would never dare to say slapstick because it's a Wes Anderson movie, but it's the closest thing it comes to shenanigans in in a movie like this where uh, ben Stiller's chasing Owen Wilson around the house and you've got the dog stuck under there, which again, the dog getting killed by a car crash, very dark for a comedy. Um, but it ends in that running or the dolly shot across the um, fire engine where Gene Hackman's talking about the Dalmatian and um, it kind of starts to tie up some of the... Or, or it sets about repairing some of the damage that's happened in this family and it's kind of full circle with the Dalmatian dog replacing the dog and the Dalmatian kind of symbolizing those Dalmatian mice that Chaz breeded when he was um, younger. And it, it's almost like the, to me, it was almost like the climax of the film as well. Cause it was, I guess a bit of almost like a bit of action 
in what's a, a fairly dialogue heavy experience. Yeah, it it definitely sort of um, is a lot more impactful than a lot of the previous scenes because, like you said, it's got that physical comedy element and it is sort of action heavy for a Wes Anderson film. So what holds up the best? I think the visuals definitely like it's it's got that Wes Anderson look and just the the colors of everything just that very limited palette I think some of the fashions still hold up even though they you know might be somewhat comical I think it still works like it's it's kitsch and it feels I don't want to say old but I mean, nostalgic, reminiscent, whatever word you want to use. I, I think it, it does just have that sort of timeless quality in that um, you can look at this film and it doesn't look... You don't look at it and say, oh, that's well, that's an early 2000s film. You might if you know a lot about Wes Anderson's work, but I think just visually it still holds up mm. incredibly well. Yeah, it's still filmed in, with like camera lenses and colour grading and cinematography that doesn't necessarily date it to any, any point in time. So you're right about that and the the like we were just talking about iconic scenes but um there's iconic images from this film and it's literally just these costumes where people still could dress up as characters from this film at halloween or whatever and you'd know what it is like the iconic tracksuit the um the headband with the the whole outfit for the tennis player and all that kind of thing so that, yeah, I'd say the design of the costumes um, and the, I guess the art of this film, the, the visual appeal of this film holds up the best for me. Um, what holds up the worst? I would probably just say the fact that it's not funny, <laughs> um, which isn't <laughs> a, a fault of the film necessarily. It's, it was just made that way. But I think that being branded as a comedy um probably heard it for me on a rewatch expecting there to be laughs or you know it, it could be similar to what you said like found it funnier when I was younger and now it's just a bit sad that we've had this life experience and probably know people with families like this or relationships like this or whatever it might be the um the idea of 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 uh holding on to past glories and not really living up to the uh, promise that people hold, it's its its very sad. Um, and it's, it's good that there's some appropriately not cheesy uh, resolution towards the end of the film. I, I did enjoy that. But um, yeah, I think just the fact that there's not a whole... That I, I, don't, I didn't laugh out loud a single time watching this. Um, so that was probably, yeah, for me, that was what held up the worst. Yeah, you're right. It's, it's not funny. Like it's, it's, it's like, at least not in the way that I'm laughing out loud or even chuckling. It's, you know, it's, yeah, I think it is. It's just of the time. Like when I was younger, I probably found these sort of quirky elements and, you know, some of, you know, Gene Hackman's turns of phrase and things like that humorous. But now it, yeah, it just paints like a portrait of a kind of an incredibly sad family in many ways that are trying to find a way to repair damage that is in many ways irreparable. Mm. 
Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, well, this will be a hard one to answer, I think. But who do you think would be the most offended? Like, was there anything really in here that was off color or out of place being a film that's more than 20 years old? Because uh, I didn't. I mean, obviously, think some of, of anything. Just obviously, some of Gene Hackman's attitudes towards the Danny Glover character and some of the things that he throws his way are, uh, you know, a little bit um, probably slightly less savory. Um, should sure, refer yeah. to a, a man of color, um, <laughs> such as Danny Glover. But outside of that, I think that's more to do with Gene Hackman's character than, you know, when the film was made. Yeah, and, and there's like a, a clear, whether it's jealousy or whatever it is towards this person that's pursuing his ex-wife. Um, so you understand that he's very upset and latching onto any characteristic he can to like insult this person and it just makes him look weak more than anything it's it's um it's handled really well by Danny Glover's character he's kind of above the insults i think um but you're right I, that i feel like that now just even calling someone by the name of a like if you just call a black character mr t or something they would be like what are you like what are you trying to what are you trying to say like that that, that's not cool you know (laughs) no it would definitely be signposting you as the idiot character yeah do you think this movie passes the internet relevancy test because I don't, apart from, you know, I mentioned the iconic imagery, the costumes that that might pop up, but I don't really think there's any moments that are referred to or called back to specifically. No, I I think you would need to already have seen it for any of it to be relevant. I don't think it's the kind of thing that you would pick up through cultural osmosis. No, no, that's right. I think you have to be in on the joke, like... Yeah, I just, I, I really, I would say that I don't think any of Wes Anderson's work pass any internet relevancy test outside of you having already seen Wes Anderson's work. Mm. <laughs> yeah. No one's just dropping gifts of Fantastic Mr. Fox. <laughs> the, the only thing that I can think of um, from many of his films would be Bill Murray blocking that kid's shot, his basketball, on the basketball court uh, in Rushmore, which is the lasting image for me from that movie. I just find it infinitely hilarious. Um, Cause he's on the phone at the same time. Like he's on his mobile phone when he's, I think doing it, which makes it even better. Anyway. Um, how would <laughs> modern smartphones and social media change this movie? I think like <laughs> uh, there's a letter that um, is written from Richie to Margot that's dictated or no it's from Richie to Eli about how he's in love with Margot and that would probably just be an email I guess not dictated on a cruise ship um but that was the only thing I could think of there's nothing really significant to the story from me what what did you think yeah it's probably about that's about it uh but again we know that Wes Anderson wouldn't use them anyway so (laughs) it's like Mm. he would just pretend they don't exist Oh, we're filming in 2022, but nobody has smartphones. Yeah. With with that in mind, do you think you could make this movie today? And what would that version look like? I mean, I guess it's fairly timeless. There's not really any reason 
it couldn't just come out now, especially since Wes Anderson still uses a lot of the same style and, and even characters and, and themes. I think this is... I think the only thing that would be different is maybe it would be slightly more refined based on his previous um, experiences in the years between. I, I think that you probably could jumble up a fair few of Anderson's films in terms of their release order and you probably would be hard-pressed to pick up differences yeah no that makes sense based on all the things we've said already i have a little bit of useless trivia before we move into the steve buscemi spike plug award the um the hand that you see with the bb lodged between its knuckles um it's actually andrew wilson the brother of owen and luke wilson and when they were children Owen apparently fired a BB gun at Andrew's hand and it's been stuck in there ever since. So that that's the kind of detail that makes me wonder if... I mean, Luke Wilson was one of the writers of this film, which I didn't realise. So he literally has brought that from his own life to the screen. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, um, I, I have to imagine this is maybe the last um, co-write that uh, Wes did with either of the Wilsons because I know they did, obviously, Bottle Rocket together. Um, I'm not sure if either of the Wilsons had any writing credits on Rushmore, but yeah, I think there is some sort of that outside influence in some elements. And I wonder, it would be interesting to really go through with a fine tooth comb and try to pick, okay, which parts are Wes Anderson and which parts are Luke Wilson? Hmm. Yeah. The other um, cool little trivia thing is that the hawk that they used to play Mordecai was kidnapped during shooting and held for a ransom. I don't know if it was quite as dramatic as that, but they they basically said that they would return it. Whoever found it would return it for a reward and they couldn't wait for that. So they replaced it with a different bird that had more white feathers because it was just a different bird. And they wrote that into the film as, you know, a bit of confusion about whether that was the same Mordecai that was returning. Maybe it's feathers have turned white from stress the way that our hair, hair turns gray um so to to watch the film and then see that bit of trivia i was like okay well i, I guess that's um a pretty good example of just working with what you've got <laughs> yeah budgetary constraints yeah indeed all right we'll move on to the steve buscemi spark plug award steve buscemi a real spark plug this was um this was a narrow selection for me. There are a lot of, um, you know, great actors in this film, but they all have fairly equal roles. Uh, so, you know, there's some smaller characters, of course, as well, but I didn't really feel like any of them stole the show. So the people that I wanted to nominate were uh, Alec Baldwin for the voiceover. Just um, actually some of the funniest parts of the movie were just when he was reading out you know, these descriptions of this family and seeing it on camera in a kind of a quirky way. But also, um, Stephen Lee Shepard, who played Dudley. And I recognized (laughs) him from Freaks and Geeks. And I think, you know, he played one of the geeks that was a few years older than the main cast of Geeks and was basically a mentor to them in all the ways of the, you know, teenage growing up puberty here's what you can expect um bit of a, a bit of sage wisdom from the 16 year old and i think yeah um judd apatow had some kind of connection with either wes anderson or 
other people involved in this film so it may have set up that casting appearance but i thought he was quite funny as this kid that's being studied by bill murray for science did you have anyone to add to those two nominees or do you have any thoughts about them specifically i think you're right the cast itself is so tight in terms of how much screen time they all get and it is pretty equal and those two characters are the ones that would stand out as slightly more supporting than the others um I love Alec Baldwin's narration in this film, so I, I think I, I am leaning slightly more towards that. Yeah. Okay, let's give it to Alec. Um, I, I think I read on IMDb trivia that he based Jack Donaghy from 30 Rock on the way that Gene Hackman's character spoke in this film. So I don't know. I can't remember any similarities specifically between those two, but um, it's an interesting thing to look out for if you're ever re-watching either this or 30 Rock. I wonder if just that sort of dry, dry delivery of certain lines... Yeah, possibly. You can swing by uh, the other one too, like, you know, talking about the going to the, the graveyard <laughs> and things like that. Last question. Uh, is this still a good movie, Stephen? <laughs> um, is it a good film? Yes. Is it a good comedy film? Mm. I <laughs> I don't think it's a comedy to my tastes anymore. Um, I think it's a little too real in some aspects and there's not as much levity in there as I would generally like in a comedy film. Um, still exquisitely made. Uh, Wes Anderson has an amazing eye for colour and uh, framing. So I still think in that way it is a very good film but if i'm looking uh, for a film that's going to lift my spirits on a low day i'm not reaching for the royal tenenbaums yeah i'm with you in on multiple levels i think that you know the the, the movie is what it is it's not going to change based on what i think it should be but i really wish it did have more levity in it like you said um to be a, a smidgen bit more like napoleon dynamite or to be a smidgen more like some of the mumblecore movies that, that have come since then, like Nebraska or Greenberg, or just like to have a bit more in the dialogue that you could laugh at. That's not just so focused on um, the character traits that, that make these, that, you know, they make the characters interesting and they make the relationships complex. But for a comedy, it's just lacking there. And is it still a good movie? Yes. Um, is it a movie that can be studied, I think, with its themes and um, uh, motifs and, you know, things that are running through and symbolism and all this kind of stuff? Yes. Uh, is it a good movie to talk about on this podcast? Don't know. We'll let the listeners decide. But, um, yeah, I think overall, good movie. Not very funny. Wouldn't call it a comedy. Um, probably the the least comedic film we've done on the podcast probably like snatch was a movie where some people said like is that really a comedy snatch is like a million times funnier than this <laughs> um and I'll, I'll leave it at that yeah <laughs> uh yeah definitely <laughs> yeah dear listeners of course if you haven't already please subscribe share the podcast with your comedy loving friends you can grab your 8-bit merch over at shop8bit.net 
If you want to support what we're doing at 8-Bit, you can get onto our Ko-fi page at ko-fi.com slash we are 8-Bit. You can leave your uh, positive reviews and ratings over at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podchaser, five stars if you please. Uh, Stephen, what can we look out for from you over at Player 2 lately? Um, I've got a couple of reviews in the pipeline that are probably slightly overdue, so I'm hoping to crank those out uh, very shortly. And obviously, uh, it's getting to that time of year. We know that PAX 2022 is on the horizon, so I'm hoping to start getting some indie showcase stuff out for that uh, in the coming months. Exciting times. Yeah, it's all going to be happening at PAX, so it'll be a good time to catch up with everyone, share some drinks and whatnot from whoever can make it and for those that can't make it we um you know we will hopefully see you the, the following year <laughs> where can we catch you on the socials on twitter i'm at gorath44000 uh for gaming and general uh me content and uh at no shelf control if you are interested in any sort of board game adjacent stuff that i like to mess around with Excellent. Uh, you can catch me at Jono himself all across social media. Dear listeners, we want to thank you once again for joining us on Comedy Rewind. Be kind.